If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you so much, Olivia. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the introduction to the book, which give you a little bit of insight, I hope, into what I thought I was doing with the sentences, some of which I'm sure we're we're about to, to talk about. I wanted to write a book that was all positives, all pleasure, only about good things. Beautiful sentences, William Gass wrote, are rare as eclipses. I went chasing eclipses, those moments of reading when the light changes, some darker luster takes over, and things or words seem suddenly obscure, even in the simplest sentence, and you find you have to look twice, more than twice. In 1853, Matthew Arnold proposed what he called literary touchstones, those privileged moments that constitute the best of what has been thought and written against which the relative worth of other works can be assessed. For good reasons, this is no longer a reputable way to think about literature, the the texture of flux and design disappearing in the preservation of mere relics. So, not a treasury then, but something closer, I hope, to a kind of commonplace book, product of haphazard notation, ad hoc noticing. Except, of course, it's not that, the raw notebook would be indecipherable, self-involved. And while I very much like the idea of a book made only of quotations, sento without glosses, notes, or scolium, not even Walter Benjamin, who aspired to something of the sort in his arcades project, could refrain from commentary and give himself up completely to the dialectic dance of fragments. In each of the 27 pieces that follow, I've tried to the affinity I feel for the individual sentence, maybe also for the work it came from and the writer who composed it, but without my figuring in advance how much analysis, how much context, how much rapture or digression I would include. I wrote, as it were, with my nose to the page, wrote for the first time in my life without a plan of the whole thing in mind, wrote from one fragment to the next, feeling for the root that affinity might take me. I wanted to talk first of all about how this book emerged and by that I don't just mean how the book itself emerged but the history of your seduction by the sentence. When does that start? When did you start realising that you were so beguiled and when did those beguilements start turning into doubt? I talk a little bit in the introduction about this. I say that I Somewhere on some shelves, not these shelves behind me, but not very far away, are about 45 notebooks that go back about uh, 20 years since I first started writing professionally, I suppose you'd have to call it. When I first started writing tiny little book reviews for Time Out magazine that people would pay me for, and labouring over them, as of course one does, right? Labouring for hours over, over these things that were about that size, the size of a bus ticket. And I... It was a moment when, having been a student, having been a graduate student, having imagined that I had a kind of academic future ahead of me, 
and having those hopes kind of dashed, I started to, uh, to read differently, I suppose. And even though I was writing and publishing very, very modest things, started to kind of amass quotations, passages uh, from writers, some of them writers I'd always loved, but others that I was just discovering. And it seemed like a different way of reading. And so one of the places that the book comes out of is this kind of mulch, this like midden uh, of, of the back pages of every notebook that I've used for the past 20 years. They have, the very back page has words, and then the penultimate page has sentences. And sometimes they spill backwards, as it were, into the rest of the, uh, the notebook. But I realize also, and I, having written that passage in the, in the introduction, that there was, of course, there was, there was a kind of longer practice of, of being, you know, bewitched, uh, seduced by sentences or by style, by, by language. But weirdly, as a teenager, you know, when I would say, maybe we'll talk a little bit uh, later on about some, some of the writers that I've been reading since I was a child or since I was an adolescent. I never used to write these things down. They, they kind of, they hung about in, in my head. So the idea of, of the sentence as a thing that kind of lives on its own, that could be taken out, separated out, is so totally attached for me to, to a kind of like a daily practice of writing, I guess. So that, that's kind of where, where one place that the book comes from is that history. And my impression of reading the book, increasingly as I went through, is that it isn't so much perfect sentences, the most well-wrought sentences, as disturbing sentences, strange sentences, sentences that perform conjuring acts, sentences that misbehave, sentences that you can fall into and not easily find your way out. I was quite charmed by that and also interested because it isn't at all the sort of style guide of sentences that one might have expected or that a less interesting writer might have produced. I wondered if we could start with both the shortest and I think one of the strangest sentences in the book, which is Charlotte Bronte, Villette. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, why don't, why don't I read you that sentence? But of course, it, it is the shortest <laughs> sentence in the book. And curiously, it is, it is one, one of the few that I have committed to memory. And it simply goes, it's from Villette, and it's from a chapter in Villette called Cloud. And it simply goes, the drug wrought. And it's describing a moment where the heroine of that novel, Lucy Snow, who's this fantastically self-effacing, but actually extraordinarily insightful and knowledgeable and canny narrator. She, she's the, the most unreliable narrator of, of the 19th century English novel. She is drugged. She has had what seems to be a kind of breakdown. She's apparently in love with the teacher that she's working for in Brussels, in a school. Brussels is kind of thinly disguised in the novel. And she's been rejected or he's leaving at that, uh, or he's about to leave the school at that point. And she falls into this kind of fit of melancholy of what I guess you might have called hysteria and so on. She's given this draft of, of laudanum, I suppose, and she goes to bed and then she wakes or she seems to wake and she goes out into the city and has this extraordinary kind of hallucinatory experience of the city. But it's all introduced by this, this tiny sentence, the drug wrought. So I was really interested in, in first of all, in the fact that it's, it's such an unusual sentence for a writer like, uh, like Bronte. It's, it's so to the point, it's, it's like this little piercing moment. 
but also the word wrought, which which in itself, you know, is, it, it has lost lots of its um, senses over over centuries. So now we think of wrought as maybe, what does it describe? Is it maybe it's something like wreak, you know, to to wreak havoc? They wrought havoc. We've confused the senses, the sense of that word. It's actually the past tense of work. So the drug worked. The drug went to work. It has all of these different meanings, even in this tiny little sentence. There are so many things that you're doing in this book. There are so many things that you're doing with the sentences. Sometimes they produce biographical essays. Sometimes they produce critical essays. But the, the ones that really linger and pay attention to language seem to me so um, exciting that they can find a word and play over that word and find all sorts of lost meanings or hidden meanings that you might not see on a on a cursory read. And another one that I was particularly struck by, in fact, I think it's really a virtuosic essay, is the James Baldwin sentence. James Baldwin writing about Norman Mailer. And your reading hinges, again, on a word and sort of trying to understand the mystery of this word. Can we can we talk about that sentence a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. The sentence from Baldwin, which is from 1961, which from his Esquire essay on Norman Mailer, and it goes, they thought he was a real sweet O'Fay cat, but a little frantic. And we should probably say before we discuss it that O'Fay there is O-F-A-Y, right? And so it's this moment when Baldwin, he's looking back at his friendship with, the, uh, with Mailer. They had met in the 50s in Paris, and they've become friends. And, and Baldwin says in this essay that, that he very much considered Mailer a friend. Mailer had then written a number of things, a number of essays or columns for the Village Voice, where he tries to kind of co-opt the idea of hip and the hipster for himself. He's trying to kind of take on what he sees as the kind of, first of all, sexual potency, second kind of potential for violence, and third, a kind of cultural cachet, which, which is very much to do with jazz as well as to do with writing, that he sees in black men, essentially of that moment, late 50s, early 60s. And Baldwin is having none of this, but he waits, he waits until 1961, and he writes this essay about Mailer, in which he describes Mailer trying to ingratiate himself with these jazz musicians uh, in Paris in the mid 50s, failing miserably. And he says, they thought he was a real sweet O'Fay cat, but a little frantic. And I suppose I, I love the fact that that essay, that sentence, it feels a real sweet O'Fay cat. It has a kind of like sleek and, and, and slow beginning, and then it turns, and it turns into this very sharp, but a little frantic. It's such a perfect description of Mailer, of Norman Mailer, frantic. But it turns on also on this word O'Fay, which I first came across in a writer that the two of us greatly admire, Ian Penman, writing years and years ago, and it's a word that he's returned to, in recent essays, writing about jazz and writing about hip, writing about the idea of the cool in the mid 20th century. And essentially, O'Fay in that spelling, in that usage means white, but a particular kind of white person who's in a condescending fashion, kind of paying attention to black culture and particularly uh, to music in, uh, in this essay. And it has a long history at the beginning of the 20th century. There's like, there's even some controversy among black writers, journalists writing in newspapers 
about whether this term is derogatory or not. Mm. So I was kind of interested in, in tracing that back. Baldwin says in that essay, there's a moment where he uses the word hip and he says something like, if I'm using my words correctly, you know, so he's he's really careful about how he's deploying these words because there he knows that a word like hip or a word like pool or a word like au fait is this kind of hostage to fortune for him and for other black intellectuals and the musicians that he's describing that can be taken, can be co-opted, can be turned and partly turned against them. It was so interesting to me. I, I'm a huge fan of Baldwin and it's not at all the sentence I would have chosen from him, but what you discovered in it, what you brought out of it was such a brilliant reading, both of him, but also of the, the period and sort of tensions and fractures that are that were going on, which seems to me something that a sentence can do. There's so much embedded in a sentence. There's a parenthesis in the essay about Roland Bard in brackets, or have them changed for them by an editor? And I think that that really struck me because it nods to something that you talk about in a few essays. It certainly comes up in the Joan Didion essay. It's also touched on in Virginia Woolf and it's touched on Elizabeth Bowen, which is that the sentence that is published is not necessarily the sentence that the writer wrote. And I wanted to just touch on the kind of sentences that I think most please you and not necessarily the kind of sentences that sub-editors, copy editors, reviewers even, perhaps even readers, like, are taught to like, believe are respectable and correct. And I wondered what you thought about that, whether you thought that the era of these sort of spectacularly strange sentences are coming to an end, or whether something like Twitter means that we're in a new sort of sanctuary of the glorious sentence size mm -hmm. state. Yeah, that's a, the, the, the question or the point about editing is a really good one. It runs through, doesn't it? It's touched yeah, on. But I, I, only glancingly, you know, I mean, the, 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 there's a sense in which, you know, a really more thorough scholar might have unearthed, you know, different, many more different drafts. I do sometimes talk about yeah, different. Very, very thoroughly in The Wolf, you pull out different versions. I think that's the only one way. Oh, no, but in Joan Didion, too. And the, and the Didion, too. But I do glancingly touch on this idea that these sentences probably had to they are survivors of a process, right? And that in some cases, writers actually had to do some work to make sure they survived. So that in itself is kind of interesting to me. I could imagine from the start of this book, a different version that goes right back to, to your first question and something you, you, you said about or implied about the kind of well-formed, well-polished, well-turned, rounded sentence, yeah. right? I could imagine kind of populating this book entirely with sentences from, I mean, let's just say off, off the top of our heads, uh, Jane Austen, Nabokov, and so on, the writers who I really love. Yeah, that really struck me that it isn't that at all. But I suppose the thing that I wanted to pay attention to once I got started, and the, the Elizabeth Hardwick sentence was the, was the first one I, I wrote about, maybe that's important, maybe we'll come back to her, was something that was catching my ear so that it seems to me that many of the sentences uh some of them are are extreme you know so some of them fly from a kind of any sense of, of a kind of aesthetically kind of rounded or polished period but most of them seem to have this the, the thing that's kind of catching my ear eye and mind is is always this sense that this well-made object is also falling apart or is kind of shaking itself to, to pieces in, in some way, 
or has has one kind of single flaw that that's somehow setting off the rest. I realise as I'm saying that that I said almost exactly the same thing in my last book about the essay as, <laughs> as a form, and I don't know what this is. You know that that I'm, I'm attracted time and again to these these yes. perfect perfect aesthetic objects that are also somehow like diseased and uh, and collapsing. But you're completely right, and I think that that that's the thing that that I'm trying in a lot of the essays. So some are doing other things, but in a, in a lot of them, I'm trying to kind of find my way in between the kind of perfection of the thing and its weirdness, its, its strangeness, the thing that doesn't kind of quite make sense. Or I'm trying to kind of bring out the fact that it doesn't quite make sense in, in sentences that, that maybe seem sort of self-evident or perfected. This, this leads us very beautifully into the next question that I was going to ask, which is, for a book on sentences, which one might expect to be sort of an aesthetic object, it was surprisingly personal. We glimpse you, we often glimpse you rather endearingly as an undergraduate trying to evade reading things like George Eliot's Middlemarch. <laughs> and that's that's very sweet, but there's a sense that you're chasing something in these sentences. These are sentences that have a hold on you. It's not just that you admire them at a distance as a writer looking at other writers. And that an awful lot of them, and you sort of touch in this in your introduction as well, are to do with death and disappearance. So it comes to feel to the attentive reader that there's something you're chasing, perhaps that you're chasing from book to book. What is it about these moments of opening up that appeals to you so much? Opening up, by which I mean falling down. Yeah, well, um, falling down, but somehow holding together at the same time. Yeah. And an example, which is a sentence that just knocked me for six in the Hilary Mantel essay, which you really sort of go over with such fascination and you can feel that it opens up a hole that you're that you're enamoured by. Should we, should we have that sentence? Yeah, let, let's have um, Hilary Mantel, which is from the essay that she published in The Guardian on the 20th anniversary, I guess, of the death of Princess Diana. If Diana is present now, it is in what flows and is mutable, what waxes and wanes, what cannot be fixed, measured, confined, is not time-bound, and so renders anniversaries obsolete, and therefore, possibly, not dead at all, but slid into the Alma Tunnel to re-emerge in the autumn of 1997, collar turned up, long feet like blades carving through the rain. My God, um, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's spectacular. And there are, I mean, there are so many things going on in the, uh, uh, in that that we can talk about. But just to stick with your yeah. Your, yeah. your precise question, it's about the bigger question about what I what it seems to you I might be chasing. Here, it's obviously about bodies, right? It's 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 about bodies, but as physical entities that are also meaning objects right and and how those two things fit together or don't fit together and i suppose just to just to kind of pull out for a second because you asked about sort of from book to book my first book was about my my family it was my, a lot of it was about my mother who died when i was quite young and a lot of it is about the memory of kind of physical mo moments to do with her body to do with illness and so on my second book was about hypochondria I've written a book about ruins, and here we are now looking at 
these sentences that are kind of falling apart as well as pulling themselves together. And I suppose that must be it, right, at some, at some level, is this kind of sense that, that writing or that art is the thing that is somehow going to console, that is going to hold things together, but it's also somehow going to, to open up, to use your phrase, it's going to open up the possibility of some kind of vulnerability and wound. And I suppose that must be it. With this book, it completely wasn't intentional. Just absolutely not. I, I, I set out to just to have some fun with these sentences and I, and I ended up sounding exactly like myself. Um, there's so much more to say about that Mantel uh, sentence. We, we could spend the rest of our time on it. It was, um, it was weirdly picked up by, I think, the Sunday Times at the end of that year, which I guess was 2017, of course, as top sued, sued of the year, literary sued of the year, which is one reason to love it, of course, right? It's a very beautiful sentence. I, everyone obviously has to buy Brian's book, but particularly for that essay, which I am very much admire. About halfway through, I wrote you an email, which I didn't send, which said, this book is the cousin of Camera Lucida. And then the next essay was a Roland Barthes essay. So I didn't send the email because it sounded like I just had got to that point. But I was really interested. Camera Lucida is about the book in which, uh, after the death of his mother, in fact, he sets out to look at a series of pictures and try and understand their hold on him, their power, their, their effect. And it seems to me that this sort of mode of address to the sentence has all sorts of similarities but Barth is such a major figure for you anyway he's such an influence you talk about him in with the sentence that you choose from his work but he, he crops up all over the place in your body of work can we can we talk about him and about his sentences which are in translation for a start this this is the thing my, my French is not good enough to have spent an awful lot of time with Barth in French though I've, I have tried over over decades so, like a lot of people, including some very great writers about, about Bart, like Wayne Kestenbaum, for example, his, his relationship with Bart is very much his relationship with Richard Howard, a poet who, who has translated most of what we know of Bart in, uh, in English. What I'm really interested in, in the, the sentence that I've chosen in this book, is the way that he writes about duff material bodies, but also food. He's such a writer, you know, for, for somebody who is still somehow thought of as the, the theorist of various things. He's such an extraordinary writer about materiality. So I guess that, that's the thing that I'm attracted to now. The first thing that attracted me to Bart when I, when I was a teenager, I'm embarrassed to say, when I was about 16, was the weirdness of his syntax, or at least Richard Howard's version of the weirdness of, the, of his syntax and these the very, very strange punctuation, the kind of pile up of, of colons, the constant parentheses and so on. I think I was just really thrilled by the kind of bristling quality of that on the page. And may, maybe this is something that we'll talk about in a while, but you said to me recently that, that you thought that this was in some ways quite a teenage book. And uh, I, think that, I think that that's absolutely right. I didn't mean that like a criticism. <laughs> no, no, I didn't take it as one either. I think that it's absolutely right. I think it has something to do with a slightly kind of naive, but also kind of reaching, pretentious in the best way, kind of urge to, to emulate or to see something in these writers, just as you would in, 
in music or in a movie star or something to to kind of own up to the fact of your being entranced or or fascinated and see where that can can take you alongside whatever else expertise or, or knowledge or whatever else you might have got along the way i think the reason i'd said that is because it reminded me suddenly and vividly of being a teenager in my bedroom which was painted purple and writing on the wall sentences that had obsessed me so there was a sentence from William Burroughs there was one from William Faulkner there was one from Jack Kerouac you can see the sort of things I was reading but that sense of it almost being intoxicated by the beautiful sentence the strange sentence the sentence that went slightly beyond the limits of your understanding that felt to me like a teenage thing and we're, we're so much drawn as as adults and as professional critics into connoisseurship and there's something about just saying that really stunned me that really entranced me that that feels like we should be doing more of it it feels exciting to revel in language in that sort of way and so few people Wayne Kirstenbaum being one of the notable exceptions really do that yeah slightly beyond the bounds of your your comprehension or or abilities or and world that's absolutely it I think yeah and inevitably a lot of those are romantic sentences they're kind of gothic sentences that they, they have very rich language they have complicated structure like Thomas Brown like John Donne but obviously you're a great admirer of Beckett and I wanted to talk about Beckett's bare language but also the very surprising sentence you chose which is not one that I think anyone would expect shall, shall I give you the um the Beckett sentence this might be the, the longest one that I, I read right now, but it's not terribly long, is it? I think I think it I think it can stand uh, to be read. It's from an essay, or rather, a radio monologue that Beckett wrote in 1946, after he had been working for an Irish Red Cross hospital in France, and he writes this radio address, which is never actually recorded or delivered and was was kind of lost for for decades it was rediscovered in uh, in the 80s and and republished and he's describing the relationship between the irish staff at the hospital and the french staff what was important was not our having penicillin when they had none nor the unregarding munificence of the french ministry of reconstruction as it was then called but the occasional glimpse obtained by us in them and also who knows by them in us for they are an imaginative people, of that smile at the human condition as little to be extinguished by bombs as to be broadened by the elixirs of burrows and welcome, the smile deriding, among other things, the having and the not having, the giving and the taking, thickness and health. It's not Beckett in many respects, right? It encapsulates the Beckettian ethos without sounding anything like Beckett. Yeah, it's curious. Two, two of Beckett's greatest scholars and, uh, and critics, Stephen Connor and Simon Critchley, have written about this sentence. And I didn't realise this until I had chosen it and started to write about it and then discovered what they had to say. Connor hates it and thinks that it's an example of everything that Beckett had to get over as a writer, including his use of commas. So he sees it as a kind of willfully kind of inhuman uh, in the wrong way and a pretentious expression of Beckett's kind of youthful youthful persona and worldview. 
Critchley thinks it's absolutely, and the whole essay it comes from, is absolutely one of the best expressions uh, of Beckett's dark, darkest comedy. So there you go. I could have chosen many, many more elegant and perfect and condensed moments in Beckett, but something about it kind of struck me, and maybe it is a strange kind of striving or reaching on his part. He's trying really hard to impress somebody in that sentence. And if it's the audience, the planned audience for this radio address, it's it's very strange. It's interesting how sort of tolerant you are or interested you are in younger writers' efforts, that the Joan Didion sentence you choose as well is a is a young person sentence and a writer who hasn't quite got control. The Virginia Woolf sentence as well mm. is not quite in control and somebody in the way that young writers do, chancing their arm, trying out their very best effects, maybe not quite as sleekly or controlledly as you might do later. I, I like that those found a place in it, that you didn't reject those and in fact you found excitement in them. Yeah, I, again, you know, this is something that I, I certainly hadn't planned and I didn't even realise as, as I was going along that I was choosing, as you say, in, not, not in every respect, obviously, but some of the time, essay sentences rather by writers, by younger writers or write, writers who became much more successful or well-known uh, later on. The Didion is maybe the best example of that. I came across in an interview, but then also in a preface that she wrote to her one collection, it's only three short stories, or one short collection of short fiction in the early 80s, a moment where she describes working for Vogue in the late 50s and early 60s and writing photo captions. And these captions would be worked and reworked. She would enter to her editor who would, would wield the pencil and they would go through this thing and she, her editor later said we wrote long and we published short and that's how Joan became a writer. So it's, it's about this kind of polishing and sculpting uh, of sentences. So she writes this thing, it's from 1965, it's in vogue, it's describing, it goes with a feature on, on Dennis Hopper and Didion wrote the photo captions uh, to this article and it goes opposite, above, all through the house, colour, verve, improvised treasures in happy but anomalous coexistence. It's perfect, it's perfect, but it's also a lie. She wrote a much longer caption which she published and then when she wrote about it later in the 80s, we wrote it. And that's kind of what's fascinating to me is that the mature, brilliant, you know, the, the Didion we know, whose, whose prose is so crystalline and so perfect, looks back at the younger trainee Didion, the Didion in waiting, and, and rewrites her sentence. It's, it's such a, it seems like such an insight into the, the level of attention that somebody pays to their own language. And of course, in fact, just this afternoon, I was I was looking again at, at Didion's essay from I think it's from the 90s on Hemingway, and you know part of the Didion legend is her typing and retyping passages from Hemingway in order to hear the rhythms, in order to to learn to be a writer, and the kind of attention she pays to word choices, to sound, to punctuation in in his writing is just delicious. So you can you can quite imagine 
that this writer in early middle age would want to go back and rewrite herself. Unbearable to the perfect Didian ear. <laughs> I love the sense of that. This is a book that provoked a huge amount of thinking. I found it, I found it very um, involving to read. And one of the questions that I had, and that I, not just for you, but for myself, was are there writers that this mode of inquiry excludes? Are there writers whose pyrotechnics are not carried out on the sentence level? Are there writers mm. who work on a paragraph level, a chapter level, even a whole book level, but whose sentences might be in some ways sort of dreary or plain or yeah. lacking excitement? And I wondered for a start whether Austin is one of those, but if there are other people who you love but you excluded because of that. Mm. Austin's a really good example. I mean, I, I'm a huge admirer and, and possibly not lover of, of Austin. So I, I, I really admire all of the, the things in terms of her prose that, that other people do. The kind of the clarity of it, the, the levels of irony in it. And somehow nothing kind of catches my ear. Not, nothing stays in the mind over, over decades. Even and Prejudice is probably the most famous yeah, sentence. Of course. Yeah, of course, of course. But somehow, this is a failing in, in me, <laughs> I guess, or it's the limitation, it's a certain limitation of what, of what I'm setting out to do in, uh, in this book, but also describes maybe certain kinds of limitations in me as a, as a reader, is that I'm drawn to a certain kind of texture, and that those are the things that I, that I picked up on in the book. I think it's probably absolutely true that there are writers whose sentences are not sufficiently textured to, to draw my attention. But I think it's probably also true that there are writers whose sentences are complex and strange and nonetheless too right, too perfected to be in this book as well. So that I, I have a list early on in the book of, of people I'm shocked having written it to find are not in it, yeah. in, including, you know, Proust and Zabold and Joyce and uh, Lydia Davis and, and many others. So there is the other direction, you know, there are sentence mongers who are so, who are so concerned with their sentences that somehow they've, they've kind of evaporated from this book at least. I think one of the, one of the real pleasures for me and perhaps for everybody is that you, as you're reading, you're assembling your own sort of canon of sentences and thinking, well, why didn't he put in such and such? And I, would argue for this one. It's, it makes you readdress all kinds of things that you've read and think over sentences that have charmed or puzzled you. Now, a great rush of sentences have arrived in this chat oh, box. Yeah. To, I'm going to read one out. From Aaron, is there any writer or sentence that you wish had made it into the book or that you would add now? And to that, I'd add that you say in the introduction that there's a writer you wanted to include but found you couldn't, which I've been desperate to know ever since. <laughs> Because I wasn't up to the job. Is that is that the is that, <laughs> is that the phrase? I think at that stage I had Proust in mind, actually, that somehow I couldn't find the right sentence. I couldn't find the kind of critical resources to be able to do that. But there, there are actually other writers mentioned in the introduction. The one that's that's that rises to the front of my mind as soon as I hear that question is that is Tim Robinson, the Yorkshire writer who lived most of his writing career in Ireland, on the Iron Islands and, and then in Connemara. 
and wrote two volumes of Stones of Aaron. It's an extraordinary study of landscape, of history, of humanity. And his sentences, I mean, it really is, you know, mention Proust, it really is as if, as if Proust had disappeared, you know, to the west of Ireland for 50 years and just doggedly, doggedly described what he saw in exactly the way that Proust described what he saw. So the, there's a sentence, it, Robinson died literally as I, as I was writing this intro, the introduction to this. When I got to the end, I uh, discovered that Tim Robinson had died. And that's kind of my one regret, actually, is that I didn't have time or resources to go back and pick a sentence. The, what, the sentence of his that's in the book is of, not in the book as one that I pay enough attention to, but it's, it's mentioned early on. Of course, the justness of a word sometimes resides in the precise degree of discomfort it inflicts. Uh, there are many other great. So that Tim Robinson, I think, would be would be the answer. From Wendy, in a time of a great many politicians' incoherence here and in the UK, oh, in America and in the UK, I'm guessing, are there any UK politicians whose sentences inspire, enrich, or delight you? That's a brilliant question. <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> Is it Boris? <laughs> no, sorry, there aren't. God, one of the questions early on with this book was, would it just be literary sentences or could it include, you know, song lyrics and, you know, movie dialogue, but also really important question, uh, political speeches. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't. I, I decided that, that that kind of rhetoric, no matter how brilliant, wasn't something for this book. It is extremely hard to think in this country, as in others, about when the last moment was that one felt like there was a language, a political language that that roused or comforted or inspired. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm, af I'm afraid I don't have an answer to that. Actually, so often what's good in political rhetoric comes from the Bible anyway, that those sort of phrases and those sort of rhythms are borrowed from biblical language. It's often stolen. Those yeah, of course. I like this question because I have been wondering about it too. This is Claire's question. I wonder about the sentence as in verdict side of the sentence and if your book hinges on that as well. Sentence as in verdict. Mm. That's, yeah, interesting. The finality of a sentence, the, sen the, the sentence is something that kind of sets something irrevocably in motion. You could imagine a, another version of this book that dealt with those sentences that have that kind of performative quality. The, the most benign version of which is, you know, the, the language of a, of a ceremony like the marriage ceremony, the most malign of which, of course, is, is the sentence, the, the condemning sentence. I guess that one of the, or my one answer to that is to say, one of the things that the literary sentence gives us is, is equivocality, right, is, is a certain refusal of finality. Maybe that's a banal uh, or easy thing to learn about literary language. I, I think that I was also shying away in some respects from sentences that were overtly what, how to, what's the word, but the kind of especially sort of essayistic or sometimes novelistic sentence that I think is very much valued in British literature still, 
or certain generations, certain kinds of literature, the sentence that somehow skewers some part of the world, you know, that condemns. And that's part of a kind of political rhetoric as well, no, ma no matter what politics it's emerging from. So there aren't sentences here from, from that kind of witty, during violent kind of political rhetoric, whether it's satirical or, or radical or conservative, because I, I'm trying to shy away from, and maybe there is a kind of politics in, in this. Someone like Bart would absolutely say that there is, shying away from the sentence that is too sure of it itself. Yeah, it's Bart's sense of the neutral and having sentences that are ambiguous or that might just shift between shift between meanings and give you a feeling of spaciousness. I think that's part of the reason that I found it so, like many people, I've been finding it hard to read during lockdown and post-lockdown. And this was a book that felt like it was full of open windows. It felt like you could go in many different directions from it. And I think that's a very rare quality and a quality very much to be celebrated right now, the sense of openness and multiplicity of meaning. What do you think, asks Alan Polvenus, about what are your feelings about epically long sentences in Faulkner, say, even the subgenre of book-length sentences? Another good question. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for, um, as readers of this book will, will discover, I'm all for long sentences. But actually, my idea of a long sentence, at least in the book, uh, is relatively short. And uh, I, can, I can actually show you, rather than tell you, exactly what I mean by turning to page 77 and saying, here is the longest sentence in the book from Virginia Woolf, from her essay on being ill. And it's only something like 20 lines or so. I like the complexity of that. It's like a, a very complex thought somehow, somehow held in the head. Whereas the really epic sentence that the question is, is describing is, is something very different. One of my favorite fictions or short stories is Donald Bartlemy's story, Sentence, which I think is about five, five to seven pages. It's about many things. It's about relationship. It's about the collapse of a relationship, but it's about the adventure of a sentence as well. And obviously there are many examples, especially lately, it seems, of novel length sentences or sentence length novels, whichever way around uh, you should describe that. I have a long sentence at the start of the book, but it's only two pages. And maybe there's some element <clears throat> in my own writing that isn't able to, to embark on quite that epic adventure. You have to be so sure, you have to be so comfortable with losing your to write those long sentences. It's true in Proust as well, I think. You have to be so, so sure that, not even that you will find your way back, but that somehow that the adventure is, is enough. Sort of related, Matt asks, did you consider including or look into the work of outsider artists who may not be writing in a self-reflexive way, whose sentences could be described as automatic and free of intentional craft? I'm not sure that I thought specifically about outsider artists, but the, the question is, is a very, very good one. And maybe it's a question that the book doesn't quite kind of address, is the, a language. I feel like the book moves around this, I'm thinking of De Quincey in particular, the mm. book revolves around the question of control and loss of control yes. actually quite intensely. Who's in control? Who isn't in control? What does it feel like when they're out of control? Do you as reader like it? 
Yeah, I think that's true, and in a way, that's kind of what we were talking about earlier when, when we talked about kind of the the, the well-made thing versus the thing that's that's somehow kind of falling uh, apart. I think at the same time that I probably have shied slightly away from the more extreme versions of that. Some people find Gertrude Stein to be that right, to be the the, the writer who is somehow out of control, whose whose language is 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 a kind of pile-up of a fragmentary pile-up of things that are already filled with fragmentary relationship and so on. I don't. The thing that interests me in in Stein, in Stein, I think, is tone, and that seems to be that carries so much in her prose. But people hear different things, and I suppose one of the things I, I hope that that I, I left open was that some people will read the long sentences in in this book and and think. Christ, that's a long sentence, and others will think, hmm, that's that's a nicely that fits nicely on the page. You know, it's really interesting, especially when you teach how people hear structure differently, how people, how readers inhabit those things differently. And I do think that probably the shortest sentence in this book, the Bronte sentence or the three-letter sentence, which actually, if we think about it as or maybe it's five words is longer than the Bronte sentence, which is from Shakespeare, and it simply goes oh 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 oh. That those are in themselves epic. I had a question about that because that cry oh oh oh, the, your first sentence in the book, also recurs at the end, and I wondered whether some of the sentences that you find exciting are exciting because they're stuttering at the very edge of the unsayable, that they're just on the brink between being able to communicate experience and breaking down entirely in the face of pain and trauma and that that sort of rent made graphic made visible in language is something that excites us in some way it moves us in some way oh 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 is one of the most moving bits in shakespeare yes it's hamlet's last last words if they are words at least in in one text of the play and it's elsewhere in Shakespeare. It's in in Lear and in Macbeth, and there, there are these and in in Othello. There are these moments of O's, just as you know Lear also has his no, 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 no. Maybe there's another no, but those moments, as you say, exactly where this thing that is is still succeeding in being expressive and making sense on the page or in the, on the stage and in the voice is is also edging towards being being just a kind of animal cry. And I was really um, amazed when I got to the end of the book. This, again, was not intentional. I got to the end of the book writing about Anne Boyer, writing about garments against women. And she tells this story via Rousseau, who's writing about language. This a scene of a girl, a young girl, writing the letter O over and over again. And Boyer has this, makes this point about this is actually her expression. This is actually saying any number of things. This inscription of the OOO, and I wrote I wrote that passage and thought, oh, hang on a second, this is exactly where I started, but that was totally unplanned. And also, that feels like it ends with a manifesto for what reading can be. That reading can open up such levels into the text that the skilled reader, the engaged reader, is on a sort of joyous, thrilling detective journey and I think you you make that manifest for the reader you make them a participant in that and 
potentially excite them into continuing it in in other texts that they're drawn to and that that feels to me like a wonderful thing to to have achieved well done <laughs> thank you and um, i think this is probably the final question because we're running out of time okay. but i wondered if we could touch on what the next sentences coming from you might be i know there are some books brewing and i thought maybe you could just oh yeah I, I have surprised myself. I have a little book coming out next year, which is a collection of essays, mostly about art. It covers some of the art that are, is in your book of essays, mostly about art from this year. But the, I have surprised myself with this, with the sentence book, that it has led to a book that is almost entirely about images. It's called Affinities, and it's about the idea of I realized I was using this word affinity all the time. And in fact, I had a, a conversation with my partner, Emily Labarge, the writer, about what I thought I was doing in this book. I wasn't entirely sure what the sentence book was really supposed to be about. And she said, well, it's, isn't it surely about affinity? It's about my connections to these things and how these things connect. And so the next book is about that. It's about the idea of affinity, but it is probably a book about images. Very exciting indeed. Thank you so much, Brian. And I just want to say before we finish, like all bookshops, the LRB is struggling under the COVID crisis. If you can buy Brian's book, that would be marvellous. If you can buy any books, that would be marvellous. This sort of deep, thrilling world of reading really only exists if there are shops to sell the books in, so please do support them. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you, everybody, for, uh, for being here. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.